From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. Scientists around the world are watching a real-time mass viral experiment unfold with the COVID pandemic. At the beginning, a single novel virus that was traced back to the Wuhan province in China has now spread to millions of people around the world and, like all genetic material, it has changed and adapted itself as the world has tried to keep it out, from masks to lockdowns and now even vaccines. This episode, we're looking at the evolution of COVID, the potential features of new strains and how these things might inform our pandemic response going forward. This episode, we're joined by Professor Hamish McCallum, the director at the Centre for Planetary Health and Food Security at Griffith University. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Perhaps let's just start with a refresher. In a nutshell, how do viruses evolve? Well, they mutate. So all that means is there are copying errors each time a virus reproduces itself. And those are mutations. Most of those mutations are deleterious. You know, if you just randomly change the words in a document, you're likely to make it unreadable. Or they make no difference, but just occasionally there will be a mutation that makes the virus better at spreading from individual to individual. And that's a favorable mutation. The other thing that viruses do, though, is they recombine. So if you have two strains of the same virus, or even possibly two different viruses infecting the same cell, then one virus can acquire bits of the genetic sequence from the other one. So that's a different way of evolution. How did Delta become the most favourable strain and why did it take over? Well, evolution favours strains that have got a steeper epidemic curve is the best way of looking at it. And that means either they've got a higher R number. So the R number is probably very familiar to most people these days. It's the number of secondary infections each primary infection causes. So if R is bigger than one, then the pathogen spreads. If R is less than one, then um, the epidemic will die out. So any mutation that increases the R number will be selected for. But the second thing which occurs even given the particular value of the R number is anything that shortens the generation time of the pathogen. So that's the interval between someone getting infected and someone passing the infection on to somebody else. So if you've got mutations that do one of those two things, increase the R number or decrease the so-called serial interval, then they will be strongly selected for. And what seems to be the case with Delta, although I think the detail is still being worked out, is that Delta multiplies within the host much more rapidly than the previous strains. So the viral load, which is the amount of virus that you've got when you're infected, increases more rapidly with Delta than it does with the other strains. And that does two things. It means that you're likely to be able to get the infection up to a level where it can transmit more quickly. So that decreases the serial interval. And then because you've got more virus present for all viruses, transmission is a very complicated process, but for any virus, there is a dose response curve. So the more virus that an individual is shedding, then the more likely it is that that will get transferred onto another person. So it seems to be essentially just the multiplication rate of the Delta strain within the host 
which is the thing driving both of those two factors. So for a while, there's been this trade-off in some ways between the virulence of the virus and the replication rate of the virus. What are we seeing in COVID? And in some ways, it's probably a good thing that it's going for a greater R value than virulence in the case of Delta. But is there a way that you can have both? Yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, Virulence is not a straightforward concept, but essentially it's the amount of harm caused to the host. And again, that's one of those things that tends to be proportional to viral load. Um, Lots of other things can affect it as well, but all things being equal, if you've got more virus in you, then it is probably making you sicker. So whilst if there were no constraints on evolution, a perfect virus would be one that didn't produce very many symptoms in its host, which would mean the host would happily run around in the environment spreading it to other people, whereas if it makes the um, person it infects sick, then that person will be identified, they'll be isolated, and, you know, in the most awful cases, you know, things like Ebola, they die. And a dead person can't transmit virus for very long after their death. Bearing in mind, of course, that Ebola actually does get transmitted when people are washing the corpse, which is something that tends to happen in West Africa. But you know, certainly if you remove the infected individual from the population, then further transmission can't occur. But the problem is there's this trade-off, that a virus which um, isn't virulent, so it doesn't make the person sick and can therefore spread for a long time, tends not to spread very well, and that's related almost certainly to the level of viremia, the amount of virus in the host. So it gives a lot of backing to why we've gotten to this place where Delta has become the dominant strain that we see around the world at the moment. That's right. Is there a greater selection pressure now on the Delta variant to spread faster or to evade vaccines? And how does that happen? Well, there is always going to be selective pressure on it to spread faster. But evolution is not, it can't do anything. I mean, if you're looking at something like racehorses, then even the strongest artificial selection has never made and will never make a horse that can run to 100 miles an hour. So there are limits to what the virus can do. We don't at this stage have a really good understanding of what those limits are. So some virologists um, think that um, the that SARS-CoV-2 might be approaching its optimum um, level of, uh, of fitness in human populations. Others think that it may have a long way to go. And we, we really don't have a good enough understanding of uh, what the constraints are on um, on viral transmissibility and virulence and so forth to be able to give a, a completely firm answer to that question. But one thing we do know, of course, is that if you have a vaccine that is not 100% effective and neither Pfizer nor AstraZeneca nor Moderna are 100% effective at stopping individuals getting infected. So the individuals get infected with the virus, and then within those people, any mutation or recombination which allows the virus to evade the vaccine will be strongly selected for. So it will increase within that vaccinated individual, and that will be more likely to spread. So we can expect to see vaccine evasion evolve. So vaccine evasion is just one thing that we should be looking out for. 
The other thing that people have been talking about is the risk of reverse zoonosis, where a human would give it back to an animal and then it would be transmitted back to humans, which is my very basic explanation of it. Could you tell us a little bit about how likely this scenario is and, and what the debate is? Certainly, there's nothing speculative about the ability of COVID to spill over from humans back into other animals. So um, you probably saw those dreadful pictures of mink in Europe um, all being euthanized because the um, the COVID got into them. Um, there's been cases of um, tigers and even domestic cats getting infected. There are deer mice in the US that are getting infected. Um, and there's some evidence that there are some bat species that can get infected. So the spill back into wildlife or into animals is an established fact. The bit which is not an established fact and is something that we can only speculate on is whether or not any of those strains will become more pathogenic if they then reinfect humans. So we can speculate that that might be the case, but at this stage we've got no firm evidence that that will happen. It's just one of these sort of things which is out there on the horizon one needs to worry about. And are there any other factors that are likely or present a significant risk in the evolution of the virus going forward? Yeah, I mean, one of the things which relates to the vaccine escape is there's quite a bit of evidence, uh, theoretical evidence and a limited amount of actual observational evidence, that a strain that evades the vaccine in a vaccinated host will be particularly virulent to unvaccinated individuals. So this trade-off between virulence and transmissibility pushes towards higher virulence if you've got vaccine escape um, where the vaccine is incompletely effective. So that's something which I think is sitting out there and we need to be concerned about. And that's something that we may already be seeing in the US and Israel among quite young children and some vulnerable populations. That Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would be surprised but of course I could be surprised, if Delta is particularly good at infecting children. I think all that's going on is it's particularly infectious. And now that we've got, in certainly places like Israel and to a less extent the US, a very, very high proportion of the older people vaccinated, it then means that the virus will be, or a higher proportion of cases will be occurring in younger people. So one of the grimmer things that people have been talking about for quite some time is the idea that if you look back at previous pandemics, they took hundreds of years to come to a natural conclusion. When we look at the evolution so far in the COVID pandemic, what are the theories for the likely way that it will evolve and will it ever die out? I think it's becoming increasingly clear that it's unlikely to die out. So this concept of herd immunity that everybody talks about, the very, very rough back of the envelope way of calculating the level at which you reach herd immunity is you take the R number, the R naught, and you divide it into one and you subtract it from one. So if you've got an R naught of about five, which is what people think could be the right sort of thing for Delta, then that means that you need to vaccinate about 80% of the population to get herd immunity. And it's interesting that that 80% number is the one that's being batted about by the government. Um, Doherty have done much, much more sophisticated analysis than that very, very simple calculation. But that presumes that the 
vaccine is 100% effective at blocking transmission. So it's not, which means that you would need to infect, sorry, you need to vaccinate more than 80% of the population. And the second thing that that very, very simple calculation ignores is the variation within the population of the rate at which people contact each other, um, what we call heterogeneity. So transmission within um, any community is not something that happens with equal chance to everybody. It's very, very clearly, if you're looking at Sydney, we are getting transmission concentrated in multi-generational households where they don't have the opportunity to socially distance. So it spreads much faster in um, households where you've got three generations and 20 people than middle-class um, households on the North Shore or the Inner East, where there might be two or three people in the household, if you're lucky. And that sort of heterogeneity also pushes up the proportion that you need to vaccinate in order to get herd immunity. So it seems to me herd immunity is a bit of a mirage. Um, as more and more people get vaccinated and more and more people have been infected already, the rate at which it can spread to more to uh, extra susceptible people goes down, but it won't go down sufficiently to eliminate it. So I think everybody who's looked at this is of the opinion that we're stuck with SARS-CoV-2 in the long term, just as we're stuck with things like flu. We've never managed to eliminate flu. There's been only one human pathogen that's been eradicated worldwide, and that was smallpox. And that took a very long time. And smallpox has got quite a low R naught. So in terms of looking at the information that we're gathering from this pandemic, what does it tell us about dealing with future pandemics and particularly the evolutionary traits of SARS-CoV-2 and the speed at which it evolved? Yeah, I mean, the, the critical thing, I think, is that all of us who've been working on spillover of viruses from wildlife to humans have been predicting a pandemic. So this isn't news, that it was a shock, obviously, when it happened. And it was worse, I think, than many people thought um, it would be initially. But we will see more pandemics as we are destroying habitat, as human populations increase. We're bringing humans into contact with viruses in animals which previously wouldn't have had much exposure to humans. And you know, if you imagine a virus in some obscure little species of horseshoe bat living in a cave somewhere in China. If that virus is able to infect humans, then it suddenly escapes from being stuck in little caves in China to being able to infect the most widespread large mammal on the face of the earth. So there's an enormous evolutionary advantage for any virus that can pull that trick. I mean, is there anything that we should be doing now as extra prevention to stop spread of those of viruses? the new ones well i mean certainly we need to be much more aware of the risk that is posed by um, destroying uh, habitats and forcing the animals that live in those habitats into closer association with humans so interestingly we've been working on a project for some years here in australia with hendra virus which as you may know um, spills over from flying foxes into horses and then from horses into bats. And we think that what's been going on is that as the native vegetation that used to feed the bats has been cleared, bats have been forced onto 
lower quality food in close association with humans. And that's what's been driving the spillover. So by doing something like restoring natural habitat, you're likely to get the bats back into that habitat, away from people, less nutritionally stressed, which makes their immune systems uh, work better, and less virus, and less chance of spillover. Professor McCallum, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. The Tea Room is brought to you by the reporters at the Medical Republic. Production assistance, the music and artwork for the show is produced by Victoria Nelson. Catch you next time.